Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You have all the talent you want, but what's going to put you past a lot of other people, give you opportunities, is, is your work ethic. The work ethic is what's going to take you to the next level. It's the work ethic. And I always say this, this phrase, go hard or go home. That's it. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Welcome back. I hope you're having a great 4th of July holiday. I know it's kind of difficult in these times, but I'm hoping you're making the best of it and having an amazing, amazing weekend and week. And I'm really excited about this episode, part two of two with Donnell Rawlings. What an incredible comedian and performer and overall amazing man. And before I get started, I want to thank you guys for listening. And if you want to reach me, you can do so at Barry Katz at Twitter or Instagram, or you can reach me on my website at barrycats.com. I'd love to get back to you. Be patient with me. A lot of messages, but I will get back to you. And thank you so much again for subscribing, for listening, and for passing this on to your friends and family and associates. I never thought in a million years that things would go the way they are with the show and I hoped but I never thought it would be like this and I think it just goes to show you what possibility is and how you look at the word possibility that defines you that defines your neighbors that defines family and friends of how they look at the world in terms of what the possibilities are and how they can get to the next level based on those possibilities. If you have no possibility, then chances are you're not going to find what you want in this world. But if you think there's possibility and hope for everything and strive for it, it will happen. Many times I think to myself about the word hit. Everyone wants a hit. 
A musician wants a hit record. A comedian wants a hit routine. A guy on Wall Street wants to have that big hit where he makes a lot, a lot of money. A lawyer wants a big hit when they're doing a big case. They want to make sure they're, they're known for, for the big win. A baseball player wants the big hit to win the game. But hit is what you make of it because you can take a hit. And boy, oh boy, I have taken many, many hits. And so has everyone listening to this podcast, including my guest today, Donnell Rawlings. We've all taken blows, body shots that you can't believe like a boxer. But what defines us as people is how we take the hit. My son played Little League Baseball and he used to hit a lot of home runs in Little League. And one of the biggest philosophies on the team taught to him by Royce Clayton, who was a former Major League Baseball player for 17 years and also somebody who went to an all-star game and won a world championship with the Red Sox. The philosophy was when you get a big hit, act like you've been there before. Act like you've been there before. But also when you take big hits and in baseball, presumably you're in a slump, again, ride it out, figure it out and you can come back and it's not going to last forever. The downtimes don't last forever, and we're in a downtime here for a lot of us in our professions. But if you can figure out how to take the hit just as effortlessly and seamlessly as you get the hits, you're going to be in great shape, and your life will be better off for it and the possibilities will be endless. And when I think of Donnell Rawlings, I think of a long career, many situations where he worked hard and other people got a role or something that he started with that took them to a higher level. But he always forged on and kept working hard and doing great things. That's the kind of man that he is personally and professionally. This is a guy who's worked with some of the greatest artists in the world, from Academy Award winner Jamie Foxx, to Joe Rogan, to the late Charlie Murphy, to Howard Stern, and to Dave Chappelle, arguably one of the greatest comedians of my or any generation. I feel uniquely qualified to tell all of you that I was blessed and honored to spend eight and a half years of my career representing Dave Chappelle. There was never a time during those eight and a half years where I ever felt anything but blessed, appreciated, respected, and I felt like 
the relationship I had with him was one of those relationships where when I created opportunities, when I worked hard on my side of the business, he always seemed to come through in the biggest ways on his side of the business. A guy who every single time we would set up a late night talk show appearance where he did stand up and he did about 40 of them before he was 20 years old. Every single one was a hit. He would prepare with me and he nailed it every time. Every film project, every television project, when the red light went on, he would score. And I take this few minutes to talk about Dave in this intro because Dave Chappelle is a genius. I may not be saying anything that some of you don't feel, but as I'll go on record, after Sticks and Stones, things changed forever in how I looked at the world in terms of stand-up comedians and how everyone should probably look at the world. Just a tremendous special. But more importantly than that, for this podcast, is the fact that that person who I spent eight and a half years of my life professionally with and still have a wonderful feeling in my heart for to this day, all love, is a guy who chooses to work with Donnell Rawlings. A guy who chooses him to work with him all over the world. When you're a genius, you can choose anyone you want. Anyone. But you choose to work with the people that are the best representation of you and your brand and who you are as a person, who you are as a man, and who you are as a talented comedian or artist. You don't choose slugs. You don't choose people who don't garner respect. You choose people that blow people the fuck away, that go on stage, that hold nothing back, and that are always going to do a performance that segues and transcends into your performance on stage as a headliner. And Donnell Rawlings created that relationship with Dave Chappelle. And Dave Chappelle created that relationship with him. And it's a mutual respect. Dave Chappelle thinks Donnell Rawlings is an extraordinary comedian. And Donnell Rawlings thinks Dave Chappelle was an extraordinary comedian. And that's the kind of relationship that I look at that is a statement relationship. Nothing about their bond together says anything but that and also a level of performance and skill in the business of stand-up comedy and the entertainment business as a whole that will never be challenged. No one can ever tear that relationship apart. And so if you can figure out how to take the hits while making the hits 
and being equally adept at handling each the same way. And if you can figure out the possibility is endless in your career as opposed to the possibility is limiting. And if you can create relationships and work with people in your field who are geniuses and who want you next to them in their life on stage or in a coffee shop till five in the morning, I can guarantee you, you'll have the possibility of having the kind of career that Donnell Rawlings has. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. You said something very profound. You have to go up every time and rip, no matter what stage it is, until you get to that point. And Dave has gotten to the point where it's a different tone. Sometimes rock goes live and it's a dramatic episode and you're riveted. Then you're like, wait, I thought this was a comedy. The, la the last four episodes, the last four specials Dave did, I was pretty much, every time I was there, um, opening act or has something to do with it and it's like crazy for me to see like how, like I, I watched him develop jokes and usually develop from just current events what we're talking about and it's like I want to talk about that and then the muscle memory kicks in when you're on stage and I'm like wait a minute this motherfucker just dropped a special just dropped another special just dropped another special and then another special and they're all solid for you to be able to put together Hours like that, that's a person that eats, breathes, drinks, and sleeps this. And it's not always just because on stage. It's like the life you live in. What are you around? What are your friends talking about? What are your friends talking about? That's how he develops his stuff. But also the other side, which nobody ever talks about, is to be as great as he is and as great as you are and continuing to be. This man has a wife of 20 years has children that he's trying to inspire and get to the next level the way they want to get to the next level to be great people in our society and to be what they want to be whatever that is and support it whatever their dream or goal is and to provide a safe environment for them. And people forget that's not something that goes into autopilot. You have to concentrate on being a great father. You have to give more of yourself to be a great husband. And to keep a relationship together like that and to keep a family together like that in that kind of situation privately and not only that situation but also in this industry this industry is a tough motherfucker to continue to be happy in it's a tough motherfucker to be continue to be happy as a dad as a partner as a friend because this industry will eat your ass alive it would eat you it would eat you and so people forget about that and for me 
I probably have not just more respect for artists like yourself or Bill Bellamy, who's been married for 20 years, or for Dave. Look, I was married for 13 years, and I didn't make it. Although I love my wife and have a great relationship with her. She was over the other night, and it was her 20-year wedding anniversary that we were talking about. And That's so, funny. <laughs> but we're not together. But to see that side of things that people forget about, they're always just looking about the judging, okay, is this special better than this one? Is this one better than this one? I'm guilty of it too, because after Sticks and Stones, I said to myself, okay, we got to take somebody off of Mount Rushmore now. Granted, Carlin, he did 14-hour specials. So even Dave, again, I'm not with him, and I'm presuming this. If he were sitting here, he would say, yes, you're going to keep Carlin there. He's got to stay there. And I presume that if he were looking at the list, he would say, listen, I know Pryor didn't do as many specials as Carlin or as many as probably I've done yet. But at the time, what he was doing was so groundbreaking and so meaningful. Sometimes five minutes of one person's time is worth five hours another time. I'm going to keep Richard there. And even Dave probably quietly might not put himself there, but... He's going in there because it's about stories and storytellers and people who evolve. And Richard Pryor, whether anybody wants to think about the history of him as well, there was an evolution of his comedy. And Carlin started as a guy in a suit and became the hippy-dippy weatherman and then became political, evolved. But we don't know in numbers what those other people contributed to the world. Because in today's world, we have numbers. All you got to do is look at, let's say, Chappelle's 846. Okay, one day I'm looking at it. Wow, 2 million. Next day I watch it again, 30 million. So I see the numbers right there hand. The world sees the numbers. And in comedy, if you watch Jim Jeffries' gun control bit, there's probably, God knows, 500 million. Because again, the people who can tell the great story where it's original and it's extraordinary are the ones that are going to get to the top of the mountain. People sometimes argue with me a lot of times. But really, Barry? What about Rodney? What, are Rodney a storyteller? Yeah, the greatest storyteller in five seconds. Oh, I gotta tell you, my parents hated me. My bath toys were a toaster and a hairdryer, <laughs> or whatever it was. So there you know the story. His parents hate him, he doesn't have a great relationship. When he's a kid, he's poor, they don't have bath toys, and they're giving him bath toys that are gonna kill him to get rid of him. Right. Oh, I went to the bar the other day. I said, surprise me. He pulled out a picture of my wife. <laughs> okay, so we know he's drinking during the day. He's an alcoholic. He's got right. a troubled life. His wife is cheating on him, and it's his bartender. And if you can tell the stories in a unique and original way, and I'll tell you something, and you know this for a fact, if I were to ask you, if all your routines were drowning in the ocean, and you can only save one to put in a time capsule, I can guarantee you you would know which one you'd put in, and I bet anything that it's the greatest storytelling routine that you have. I know exactly what it would be. It would be the bit I did. Well, I can't do two. I can't. I'll just. I'll do. 
One was the story of Fat Tyrone still in my bike when I was a kid. <laughs> the other one be the story of how I got intimidated when my teacher called my name to be the next person to read out loud in front of the class. Now, the reason why I say the Fat Tyrone bit would be that because the Fat Tyrone bit, when I first started, I when I first started, I was fortunate enough to be able to, I just, I didn't write jokes. It was just these people in my life. And then I would embellish on a story and make it the story. And there was a story of this, my mom, we were broke when we were coming up. And my mother, my mother finally saved enough money to get me and my brother a bike. First thing she told us, and this is like in the hood, in the neighborhood, whatever you do, don't let nobody ride your bike. And my response, Barry, was, I'm not gonna let me nobody ride my bike, let me have my bike. Don't let nobody, I'm telling you, she's like, Fat Tyrone, they're gonna take your bike. <laughs> First person I see, Barry, is Fat Tyrone. And what did I do? I gave him my fucking bike and he took it and I never saw him again. But the reason why I would put that in the time capsule because I was the first bit I did on television. And as a young comic, when I was just coming up with these premises, whatever, Royale Watkins, he heard me just set that joke up there. It was just like, you remember when you, you had your bike, your mother said, the only thing I got from the audience was like, what did your mother say? What your parents said? And the crowd would be like, don't let nobody ride that bike. That's the only thing I knew about that. Royale knew that that was gonna be a beast bit. Royale bought that bit from me for 25 bucks when it was only two sentences, right? And I was like, fuck it, I'll take 25 bucks. But I was like, he said, let me buy that from you. I was like, how much you got? He said, 25 bucks. I said, I'll take it. I got so many jokes I could write. And then I think a week later, I went to another open mic and I didn't tell him, but I tried to joke again and it worked. And it started growing. And the next time I saw Royale, I was like, yo, take this fucking punk ass $25 back. I want my joke back. What did he say? He couldn't do anything because it didn't matter, Barry, because he wasn't going to be able to do it. I'm like this. You can either give me the joke back or I'm just going to take it back, whatever. But it meant so much to me because that was the first thing, I, that was the first bit that I did that had structure, beginning, middle, end, had story, had characters. It was the first bit that I did on television. Then they have another show called uh, Laugh Mobs, uh, True TV Laugh Mob, where they take your joke and they recreate it and act it out. And just as a little anniversary to myself, I did it like a newer version of it just so I could have that history. But that would be the joke that I would put in a time capsule, the story of Fat Tyrone taking my bike. One of the things that is always fascinating to me about comedy and comedians' mindsets in the past three to five years is their excitement and obsessiveness with the hour special. When I started, Roseanne and Louis Anderson did five minutes on The Tonight Show and they were selling out 5,000 seat venues after right. that. And things evolve now to where a late night set is almost essentially throwing away money by burning your five or seven I, I minutes. I want to talk about that. I hear, first off, the names you name and you take it back to Roseanne specials there's nothing special about a special anymore unless it's special unless it's special and how it is special like the people you talk about the, 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 when they did those specials like you said you remember a bit it, it lasted forever but now 
it's such a oversaturated field now. It's like everybody's special. So what's so special about it? I did a special. I did my first special, my only special. It was called Ashy the Classy, right? And um, the reason this, the way, how that happened was Comedy Central were looking for people to do half hours or whatever, right? In my comedy, I was just working blue. I was working blue. Why were you working blue? It's because the environments I was in, it was so easy to be dirty. It was easy, but when I say dirty, I don't think like, when I, when I say dirty, I don't mean like, this bitch was sucking my dick. I don't mean like that. It was a little blue, but I always, always had substance with it. But going to the situation, so I didn't want to see this take because I had a lot of motherfuckers in it, and I was like, if they could just take the profanity out, they could see the structure of a joke is there, right? And I didn't want to, send it and then when I sent it to them everything I was critical about that's what they said it was like well it's so, so I was like motherfucker I didn't want to I didn't want to send the tape y'all kept hounding me hounding me so what I did Russ Parr he's a radio personality and he had a relationship with Image Entertainment he was doing these like B-level movies and I said yo man I said you got anybody that could put some money up for me to do a special and this was because I was mad I, what I told them they criticized me with what I told them they were going to critical of so he said, I got somebody. And at this time, Image Entertainment was just giving money away. So they knew of me. We got 150 grand. I did it at Sturbar, the Skirbar Theater. And, um, and this is how gangster it was. Normally when people do a special, they tape two times to four times. It was like me doing a theater play. I had one shot at it. The reason why somebody does one shot at it is because you have a certain amount of money that you're putting into something. And so if you have the 150, you have a choice. You can do four tapings, but that has more resources and it's taking away from how you produce the special in the best way because you're paying more for people, cameraman, extra days, extra editing, looking through footage. But if you are somebody who does your special in one shot, the key is, is that if you flub a line, you just go back. You just back say, up. hey, the audience, we're going to try that again. I'm going to go back and do this. And then you can also take a break. I know it's weird in the flow of the thing to lose your momentum, but you can take a break if the director wants you to and test the sound, test everything, make sure everything's working and give you the go ahead. Okay, we're good. Or sound went off on one bit. I'm going to need you to redo that bit. And then you go back later on the audience, listen, I know this is weird, but before I close the show out, we're going to do this bit again, pretend like you've never heard it before. And you go and you do it and you spend that extra time. And if you think you're going too slow, go slower and you'll get everything you need. And even if at the end of the special, never you files out, the director says to you, I fucked up, man, this bit on Tyrone, I fucked up cameras were shaking i was changing tape i didn't get it will you go back on stage and do it again without the crowd here and we'll mix it like the crowd is there and in and, and, and my situation i was like this god damn it you got one shot you needed an hour but i did like an hour and 25 i said and then i was editing myself i took pauses and in my brain i'm like this okay they, we might put this joke there put that joke there so we invited comedy central down and comedy central didn't want to um remember they passed on me so they was like, we don't want to sit close to the front because we might leave or be like totally disrespectful, like we might be out. I did my special. They was the first people that jumped on it. Uh, Showtime wanted to give me the deal, but it wasn't enough money. And then um, HBO passed on me. And I was like, why did HBO pass on me? So I, was like, I looked at that show. 
like my as it was funny, but what I didn't have, you've always preached I didn't have a point of view. You know what I'm saying? I didn't have a point of view. And I knew what it was. And I was like, so the next time I ever get to do it again, I'm going to have that beginning to middle and the end. So some years passed. I was in the eye, side, eye line of Robbie Pra. For those of you who know, Robbie Pra started at the Montreal just for last festival, and he moved up the ranks a lot there to the highest level of booking all the shows. And then he got offered a job in Netflix about three or four years ago, and he's moved up the ranks there, and now he's the man, the head of the specials department there, along with Joanne Grigioni. Exactly. So, And she was over at Comedy Central. These are the politics you have to deal with in your quest to do really well. You got a great special. You got Robbie, who might know you and know of you and think you're great. But then you got somebody who was there at Comedy Central when they passed on you. So you're wondering, okay... Well, I guess we're going to find out if they were somebody. And she was one of the ones that passed on me. And I'm saying to myself, dude, my relationship with Dave Chappelle, it's work, it work, it, I was like, it's working for me because every time I do a show with him, the big dogs come out. Um, uh, uh, Netflix is there every night, every night. And Robbie used to see me rip, see me rip. And I never asked him about doing a special, but I was just like, just let your work speak for itself. And I was working on this other project with um, Jeff Ross was doing something, history of um, the, uh, the, the historical roast battles. So I saw Robbie and I said, Robbie, we've been knowing each other for a year, for years now. I said, what do I have to do to put myself in a position to give myself a better opportunity to work with you? And he looked at me, he said, Donnell, um, you're one of the funniest guys I know that's working today. He said, but you gotta realize this. He said, we tell people no all day. I respected that, but I said to myself, you know what, I gotta work harder because I don't want him to say no anymore so and at this time i had already had an hour that i was waiting waiting to do so they they didn't give me an hour from a montreal showcase but they said we got something we want you to we want to give you we're still thinking about it but we want you to do netflix degenerates right it's 15 minutes right and then and i was like daniel you got this hour and going back to what you said you could take but you got some solid bits right you could say I'm saving these bits for the right special, but that's not guaranteed. So what I did was I had that opportunity to do Netflix The Generous and then a special with Monique. I took an hour show and chopped all the fat off, Barry. I took damn near 45 minutes and squashed it into 15 minutes for Netflix. I took another 50, 35 minutes and squashed it into 15 minutes for Monique. And I was like this, how do you get a special? By your resume. I'm not guaranteed to get another opportunity. And I killed him. I killed him. Got Netflix on the hook again. I'm this year. This is the this is why I hate the coronavirus. This is one of be gonna be the best one of the best stand up years in terms I was working with Martin Lawrence. I had gigs with Joe Rogan. I had gigs with Dave Chappelle. I had my own stuff. I had these other nights. And I had this Pixar film coming out called Soul with Jamie Foxx. I had a couple of scenes in that. The rhythm and the momentum was going. I was like, if I go through this summer, I know I'm going to get a Netflix special. And then the corona shit just completely shut the industry down. And one of the things I'm grateful about what Dave Chappelle is doing out in Ohio is that not too many people are working out in front of a live audience. So I get to stay sharp. I get to be prepared so when things start to loosen up a little bit more and they go back to producing these specials, not only will I just have jokes, but I have a strong point of view and I'll be able to, I'll be able to kill it. I just want to go way, way back 
take me way back, tell me where you grew up, the exact neighborhood, what was the dynamic economically, and what was your first inspiration to getting into this crazy business? So I was born um, Washington, D.C., raised in Alexandria, Virginia. When you're from the what they call the DMV area, you got to be specific because if you say you represented by a city that's not, they'll get upset. You know, most people, when you say, I'm from D.C., what part? Prince George's County. That's on the suburbs. But I was born in Washington, D.C., moved to Alexandria, Virginia. I was always a Section 8 kid. And that was a, What is a Section 8 Section kid? 8, you got, you got different situations, like a welfare kid. That's somebody that's straight up on welfare. Section 8, Section 8 families were people that was like right on the border of poverty, and low class, but Section 8 people where where the government supplemented the little bit of money that your parent was making. My mother was a single parent. My father was in and out of prison. My father was a heroin kingspin, um, and I was proud to say he was a kingspin and not just a bullshit dude, but my father had very, very, very interesting life. He passed away a couple years ago. Um, I love my father. We weren't as close because when you're doing a six-year prison term here, six-year prison, it's hard for you to connect with your kids like that. You visit him with your mom? Or? Always. And always. So your mom stayed with him when he was prison? They weren't, yes, oh, mentally. Physically, it was a disconnect, but my mom loved, and they weren't together, but my mom loved my dad till he died. And she brought you to prison how often? We would probably, out of a summer, maybe two or three times out of the summer. This is a question I don't know the answer to. Yeah. I remember there was a friend of mine who was in prison that I used to visit, very close friend. And I almost felt there was a feeling of people who came to visit and it was a predominantly white in Altoona, Pennsylvania. I heard about that. That's the um, white collar. I know the white collar. White collar um, prison. And it was almost like the people visiting were ashamed to be there. In the African-American community, when you visit a prison, is it a different cultural thing? or is it? I think s- that it's not as, for me, it never was a shame thing. So you didn't go to school and have kids say something that made you angry, like your dad's in jail? No, or... not not too much, Barry, because everybody was in the same situation. <laughs> so it was like, it was a proud moment to say, I went to see my father this weekend, you know? And that's one thing that my mother really was concerned about, the relationship that we had with my father. You know, she never shitted on my dad, never talked shit. He's locked up or anything. She always, and it was like, I remember the look on her face. It was always like, it was sad, but it was happy at the same time. They, they, we knew our dad. We got to see him, whatever. But How much time did you get to visit with him? It was, I think, like an hour and a half. And after about 30 minutes, you're ready to leave. <laughs> you know, it's like, this is cool, but after a while, mentally, you was that glass, you know, and talking through that phone. But for me, I just was happy that I had a dad. Cause so many guys that I grew up with was like, they would say, I don't got a father. It's the most tragic thing you could say. Like, and for different reasons, that some reasons the relationship wasn't good. The mom didn't try to, mom didn't try to, you know, like uh, create a family cause it's hard. 
But we used to go see him, and I used to always be excited. I was always, always excited to see him. So how did you get into comedy? Well, when I was, I was in the Air Force, I was a police officer in the Air Force. So, you know, like a lot of people, when you're in the military, whatever job you were trained were in the military, you do it when you get out. So I was waiting to be a DC police officer, and in the interim of that, I was head of security for Safeway, it's a grocery chain, right? And then the people that my job, I remember this guy, Mike Washington, a comedian out of DC, he worked for Hostess Cupcake Company. So he was a, worked in the daytime, was a comedian at night. So he would come and stock the shelves with Hostess Cakes, and he would give us free tickets, you know, like he would paper the room. So we would go just as like coworkers going to have a good time, and I, Comedy Connection Greenbelt, and we would go there every Tuesday or Wednesday, whatever night it was, and I would heckle the comedians. I was an asshole, Barry. I would heckle the comedians, and I was such a good heckler, they call it roaster now, that people started coming to the club to watch me heckle the other comedians. And I had a good paying job there, and I was such an asshole, I thought I was a business person. I went to Rajberry after heckling for three weeks in a row, and I tried to get a door deal. <laughs> Barry, I was like, I said, Raj, look, I've increased your business, because it was true, like, we used to come deep. I said, I'd increase your business by 20%, I think we should work on a deal. He was like, who are you? I was like, I'm the guy that's never been on stage. So they wanted me to shut the fuck up, because comedians hated me, because I was so good at being an heckler, and that they would tell, they would try to say, yo, don't fuck with us, I'm trying to work on this. I was like, do your job, I'm gonna do my job. So eventually, the promoter, Pop Everest, he said, you wanna go on stage? And I was like, yeah. When? He said, tomorrow. I was like, nope, I need another week. I was nervous. I went on stage, and the first time, Owens, I think Owen might have been there, Owen Smith. And I think the, the first the first time I ever went on stage, Monique was there, it was like that whole DC crew. The first time I ever went on stage, I got a standing O. And it wasn't like... Did anyone heckle you? No, but the thing is, I wrote First all, time you went on stage, you I, got a standing up. First, and, and I know why. Do you know how rare that is? It's, it doesn't happen. I but saw I, that happen with the late John Panette. But I know why it happened, because like that audience was rooting for me to graduate from Heckler. To They was waiting for the day when you're going to go up there. Right, and I had wrote what I thought was a 30 minute routine. I was so stupid, we had an open mic list of 25. They kept bumping me, I thought I was headlining. After the 24th comedian, I would wait. And what happened was, the energy was so overwhelming, it's like he did it. All of those jokes that I wrote, I forgot everything. I blacked out, and then I went to, I started uh, snapping on the people in the front row, and then I got that first laugh, and then I went into the jokes I had. I didn't know what the light meant or anything, Barry, and they gave me the light, and I was like, oh, I gotta get out of here. I didn't know the light meant wrap it up, you know? I just cut, and the crowd was like, nah, fuck that, we want Donnell, and it was like, it was in that moment, Barry, that I was like, this is what I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life. I knew it, it was nothing else. My only concern was like, how do I get fired from my job? so I can get unemployment for six months to go to New York. And it was maybe seven months after the first time I ever went on stage, I was living in New York. Tell our audience what it's like when you're in the heat of seeing things come to fruition and the pride that you have for your family to see 
and right at the moment when you feel things are starting to go in that direction you have no control over it and somebody passes away in your family like your dad how do you handle that as an artist and the reason i say that is i remember when dane cook was filming his first hour special at boston garden and his mom got really gravely ill and she'd been to every one of his shows and there he had to be in a situation where he did his thing without her and I remember the greatest thing of accomplishment that he had is when he asked me to go to HBO and Marty Colner to approve getting the tapes at least one single shot of him so he could fly it down and get it to her and so she could watch it. Well for me it was interesting because um, my dad had just got released from doing a when I started doing comedy, he just was released from prison. And I invited him to one of my shows. And I was so happy he was there, Barry. And I, I started off so strong, so, so strong on this show. I did like 30 minutes. But at the last, last five minutes, I didn't kill it. So, and my dad was with his friends. I was like, Dad, how do you think I did? And like this guy been in and out of prison almost all his life. Hasn't been there for my career to start. And the only thing I wanted him to say was, good job, son. But he said it was okay. I was like, what? He was like, you gotta understand, son, it, it's not how you start, it's how you end, right? But I was like this, um, stay out of prison, right? <laughs> I'm saying, I'm like this, if you wanna give me, but, and that was a thing that we had, and I was like, I didn't really think he liked my comedy that much, and I used to always have a little inside joke about it for years to go, and then he was like, son, you think I don't think you're funny? I said. I don't know, Dad. You talk about Bernie Mac. You talk about Charlie Murphy. You talk about all these people. He said, Donnell, everybody can tell you the good things you're doing, but not too many people can tell you the other stuff. You know, it was like this. Yeah, I could be like, you're great, you're great. But I knew I started getting more respect for him, not because of what he saw, because my father's a hard figure, but the reaction, this is why I felt acceptance, the reaction that his friends had toward me. The reaction, the street buzz, right? He said, I used to, because my dad's nickname was Box. He said, I remember I was Box. Now I'm Donnell's son. And I remember one time he came to see me at the DC Improv and um, he was such a hustler. Like he would he would get food or whatever and then he'd ready to go pay the check. And they'd be like, oh no, your money's no good here. He was like, shit, can I go to a car dealership and <laughs> use that credit? But going back to like, and when he passed away, like my father's tough. I'm tough, try to instill the same things in my, my brother. But what he made my da dad pass away, it made me want to go above and beyond to be the best dad that I can and give my son as men, many memories as I can. Barry, I can honestly say on two hands, I can count all the memories, those moments I remember with my dad, two hands. I got more memories with my son who's about to turn five in August in five years of his life, then my, being my dad's relationship. No resentment or anything, but the life that my father chose, I don't want that life, but it makes me really, really want to do everything just to make those moments with my kid. And one of the things I've realized as a dad, which probably isn't always sound good, but 
It doesn't matter what my memories are. My memories are only to serve me. What matters is what they're going to be thinking about when they're on the couch talking to somebody 20, 30 years from now, 40 years from now. And so if my children can feel the same way about my memories like they feel for themselves, then we're all set. Then we share the same memory, and it's great. And I'm going to tell you, what, it's so funny, he said, as stand-up, my son, he he's curious about it. But one thing, the memory that I've instilled that he'll have is that one word that it's an alert, we're allergic to in this profession and we don't say is the word corny. If I say corny around my son, he's like, hey, we don't like that word, Dad. We're comedians. So if I'm at my deathbed and it's about to go down, uh, Barry be like this, what word? <laughs> don't we like corny, Dad? And I can go away. And one of the things also is that you mentioned, we're talking about Chappelle. Look, if you're a comedian and you do a special or you do the Chappelle show or whatever it is, if you can have that one moment, just like a musician, have that one hit off the album, one, what people understand is that you put your heart and soul into 10 tracks or 12 tracks or the Chappelle show, you put your heart and soul into seven sketches. And if one makes it, you're like, holy, what a celebration. But as an artist, it's not a celebration because you always want everything to hit. When you do your next hour special, presumably something that you will write and who knows, maybe Dave will be there with you. You know what? One thing I do, my friends, I don't ask for favors too much because I want to keep a friendship pure. You know what I mean? But... I'm like, when is this motherfucker going to say something? And I'm telling you, Dave has asked to produce my special. He was like, yo, I want to do it. And I'm like, I'm like this, say no more, motherfucker. But then in, but in pure Chappelle fashion, it's like one month he want to do the special. The next month is like, well, I don't know. But I know that there is a connection there. And I'm pretty sure that um he's going to, and the thing is, I don't, everything I'm gonna get is gonna be off of my grind and my work. I don't need him to do that, but I'm like, one of my closest friends, we think of like, the production you put into something or whatever, it's almost a no-brainer that we will come together like that. Regardless, if you do what you're supposed to do in this life and this business, look, Kevin Hart produced Keith Robinson special. If Keith were sitting here if you ask them, well, did that make any difference in my career, whether I did a regular hour special or his name was on it? The bottom line is the content that you put 100%. in the special has to blow people away. It doesn't matter if 100 million people watch it because Chappelle or Kevin Hart produce it, right. but if 100 million people watch it and it doesn't blow them away, then you're not going to get anywhere. You're right. But if a million people watch it and it blows them away. They're going to pass it on and you're going to have hundreds and hundreds of That's why you can look at certain comedians and see the routines that get the most play. Like I mentioned, Jim Jeffries, the gun control bit. I mean, nobody does anything like that. And if they do, they don't do it like that where he's going into an audience where half the people don't agree with what he's saying 
and he can still bring them along, and it's incredible. I got a bit where I talk about the Vegas shooting with FBA Barry. This bit I got, I did it on Monique's special. It has the audience looking at me like this. And then, because and if, if it doesn't get butterflies in my stomach, I don't like it. But it'll be right there. And then all of a sudden, I was like, thank God. But, you know, I'm working awesome. toward that. And I'm, I'm pretty sure the next time I have the opportunity, which I will create, that um, I'm coming to bring heat. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. Um, Damn, I, don't, I haven't got disappointed about too much. Um, I've missed opportunities. I've missed opportunities, but I don't know. I don't put myself in a, I know it may sound crazy, Barry, but I don't put myself in a situation to be disappointed. And even with not getting certain things, always feel like there's a it was something to be learned and it's just to the next one. What advice do you have for the young comic who's out there growing up in a tough neighborhood and maybe their father is in prison or whatever it is their life is and they're alone in their bedroom like every other kid trying to figure out where they're going to get to where they're going to go and, and how do they get to the point where they have the relationships, have the resume, worked with the most amazing people in the world and forging an amazing business life like you are. With this, um, first off, understand probably 75% of your career is not going to be successful. Always tell young comics coming up, first off, you have to be able to be happy being broke because if you can't deal with that, which is going to be a lot, lot, lot of your career, you won't be able to make it through this. Um, be able to do what the next person won't do and um, uh, realize that um, like uh, you have all the talent you want but what's going to put you past a lot of other people give you opportunities is, is your work ethic you gotta and this is one of the things that as much as people make the argument about how funny Kevin Hart is and all this shit like the work ethic is what's going to take you to the next level it's the work ethic. And I always say this, this phrase, go hard or go home. That's it. And this is a very, very dirty business. Be prepared. Be prepared. Donnell Rawlings. Barry Katz. What an honor this has been. Thank you for coming here before you travel out to Yellow Springs, Ohio. I can't wait to get to Yellow Springs. It's going to be a good time. Truly, truly grateful for you, and you're an amazing guy, and I've loved watching you, and I'm so proud of what you've accomplished. It's incredible. And, and thank you for never signing me. No, <laughs> I got more advice from not being signed or anything, but I'm telling you, man, I always, like, it's so funny because you asked me what would I tell young comics, but a lot of things I tell young comics or a lot of things that you've you've you told me and if without crediting me. No, I'm never gonna give you fucking credit. <laughs> we still in black. Black people, black is a new black. <laughs> now, now be honest though. Yeah. I mean I always felt like even though I didn't represent you, I would bet that out of all the representatives in your lifetime, agents, managers, lawyers, I would bet that you could stack up all the advice I gave you against all, against all of them combined. 100%. Because 
because I always wanted to do something to help, even though I wasn't. But I know. But I'm gonna tell you, the way you helped me was that you believed in my talent, and like the first time you said about the stage, I was good. That's the only thing for you. And again, you having an eye that you have for talent, and like I knew you wasn't bullshitting me. You know the things you said, but then you know we never connect like that. But you had proteges. You know what I'm saying? And you know I worked with them. You know, but the fact that I'm telling you, the fact that Barry Katz would compliment, because you wasn't an easy motherfucker. You know what I mean? The fact that you could say something to take the time to say and give some criticism, because I know back then, at that time, it was like, everybody, Barry, 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 you was hot shot manager. But the fact that you was like, there's something about him, whether we work together or not, it was like, that was enough incentive for me to be like, yo, motherfucker. Barry Katz think a motherfucker's funny. Boom. You were, you are, and you will continue to be. Thanks, brother. Appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I want to talk to you about an amazing documentary that I worked on a few years back called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I ever did in my life. It's centered on a man who'd been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing Kennedy, and his story is unbelievable. He started as a runner for the mob. He was hired to drive two hit men from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy who calibrated their weapons. And he was there that day with one of his own and took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere else except on this documentary. So go to barrycats.com to the merch page and buy the documentary with the rare interviews of the five greatest historical experts in the world. So just go to barrycats.com, the merch page, pick up the documentary and interviews, and I guarantee it will reverse the way you feel about what happened that day in 1963 and change your opinion of the government and how it works and alter the way you think about things forever. Lastly, I want to talk to you about something really impactful and it involves something really close to my heart, self-education. You see, throughout my life, I realized that every success I've ever achieved in my career has come from the education I received from my experiences in the business. And I truly believe that we all have the knowledge inside of us that others would kill for. And by sharing that, we can open up an entirely new world of possibilities for ourselves. That's why I'm so excited to tell you that I partnered up with my friend Tony Robbins, who's been number one in this field for 40 years. Along with his team of experts, Dean Graziosi and Russell Brunson, they'll show you how to take that valuable knowledge in your mind and turn it into an incredibly profitable mastermind workshop or event, just like they have and continue to do in their careers. And they're launching a new training program that's literally changing people's lives by helping people like you be a part of this $129 billion a year business. So it's an incredible opportunity for someone like yourself to build your own business, share your knowledge, and help and serve people in a huge way with the guidance of Tony Robbins, the best in the business. He's actually going to teach people like you how to make big money and build a successful business. 
So if you're ready to take your life to the next level, they're doing a free live training session today at barrykbb.com. That's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com. Look, I've done over 440 free podcast episodes of Industry Standard. And because of your incredible response, it's reinforced my belief that we're morally obligated to share and pass on our knowledge with the world and help other people in those ways. I truly believe this. And I really love this groundbreaking training program and how it can turn your knowledge into an extraordinary amount of money. So just go to barrykbb.com, that's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com, to this free training session with the best in the business, Tony Robbins. I guarantee you, it will change your life forever. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money Drop that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.